Your cell phone is a lot more than just a phone. It's your address book, camera, calendar, wallet, map, compass, music player, calculator, alarm clock, radio, newspaper, TV, flashlight, and depending on what apps you have, a bunch of other things, too. Really, it's a portable computer that just so happens to also make phone calls. We use our phone for so many things that it's hard to imagine a time when we lived without it. But until a generation ago, that's exactly what most of us did. The cell phone has changed how we interact with the world and with each other. And there's one phone in particular that's played a major role in this societal transformation. The iPhone. One moment, just uh, put my phone on quiet. There we go. (laughs) That's Bass Ording. In the early 2000s, he was working as a user interface designer at Apple when his phone rang. It was Steve Jobs calling from a landline. Jobs told Bass that the conversation they were about to have had to be kept secret. He told Bass that he wanted to design a new kind of cell phone, a phone without buttons, a phone that was just a glass screen. This was the genesis moment of the iPhone, which would move from birth to launch in just a few short years. Today, a decade and a half later, there are more than a billion iPhone users on the planet. And I would be on vacation somewhere, you sit on a, in the subway somewhere, you see someone use an iPhone right next to you. And I'm like, wow, I was working on that stuff. And now I'm like somewhere else in the world and someone's just using it like it's, you know, no big deal. And I thought that was uh, really special to see that uh, for sure. It's amazing how much we rely on it. We never thought it was going to be this kind of big of a thing. Bass helped imagine iPhone technology, but he never dared to imagine how world-changing it would be. The iPhone represented a huge step forward in mobile tech, but not the first step, not even close. You need to go back half a century for that origin story. Marty Cooper was the one who invented basically like the cell phones uh, in the early 70s uh, that made a huge change in how people communicate, right? The Marty's work was the precursor to what ultimately became like technologies that were used in the iPhone. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from Setapp, a show about the tech underdogs no one realized would shape the future. Setapp's versatile app subscription service empowers you to step into a new era of productivity. And what I'm showing you now is an exact replica of the very first cell phone. The phone itself, not counting the antenna sticking out of the top, is about 11 inches high, 2 inches wide, and this phone weighs almost 2.5 pounds. This is Marty Cooper, the guy who introduced the world to the cell phone. And what was revolutionary then can easily be seen as primitive by today's standards. It can only talk for 25 minutes before the uh, battery runs out. Of course, that's not a problem because you couldn't hold this thing up for more than 25 minutes. It's so heavy. And that's all this phone could do is make phone calls. No texting, no video, no camera. So that was it. (laughs) In 1954, Marty started working at Motorola. At the time, they were mainly in the business of making radios and TVs. Then, in the 60s, Chicago's police department approached Motorola with a unique problem. 
officers talked to each other using two-way radios attached to the dash of their squad cars. This meant that they had to be in their vehicle to effectively communicate with each other. But the department believed that for officers to do their job properly, they needed to be on the street interacting with the community. So Marty devised a portable radio for the Chicago PD, one that they could wear on their person. This allowed them to spend more time on the street while remaining in contact with other officers. Marty was proud of this new technology, but officers were a little less than impressed. Yeah, on my way to work, I got pulled over by a police officer. I was going too fast, and I thought, I know how to get out of this. I'm going to give this guy my sales pitch. And I told him, you know, that we've got this radio you're going to be able to carry with you all the time and be in connection. And he says, yeah, just look at me. I got my baton. I got my handcuffs. I got all this stuff on my belt. That's just what I need is another thing. You're getting a ticket, bud. And I did. But the value of this new device soon made itself painfully clear. At the beginning, the police officers, they hated it until the very first police officer interrupted a burglary. He got shot in the leg. And while he was lying on the ground, he called for help on his two-way radio. And we never got another complaint about carrying too many things on your belt. And that's when we created what really was the precursor, the beginning of cellular telephony. It's somewhat ironic that the precursor to cell phone technology was devised by a company that, at the time, wasn't even in the telecommunications industry. In fact, until 1984, there was only one telephone company in the U.S. The telephone company, Ma Bell. Because of the vast networked nature of phone technology, Bell was given a monopoly through most of the 20th century. But by the early 70s, both Motorola and Bell started developing cellular phone technology. And as Marty points out, there was one huge difference between their philosophies. Let me take you back to 1969 when the Bell system said, we know how to do cellular phones. And our vision is that it'll be a car phone that not many people are going to want car phones. They admitted that. They said the market is not big enough to have more than one company providing this service. And of course, we disagreed with that. We thought that everybody was going to want a cell phone. To us, the cell phone was freedom. It was the freedom to be anywhere, not stuck in your car, not wired to the wall. So we had a real different in perception. And that started a battle. The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, deliberated over who would be allowed to provide cell phone service. They could vote to keep Bell's monopoly intact, or they could vote to dismantle the monopoly and open the telecom industry to competition. It was a tense time for Marty and Motorola. We were really afraid that the FCC would make the wrong decision. And that's when I decided, you know, the only way we're going to persuade them that this is the way to go to actually show them, actually have somebody hold this thing in their hand and talk. And that's when I decided we're going to build one. Everybody said it was impossible. And I said, no, it's not impossible. Marty started pitching his idea to folks at Motorola and assembled a team of 20 engineers to work on a cell phone prototype. Over three painstaking months, impossible slowly morphed into possible. Everything was hard. We have to be able to talk and listen at the same time. Doesn't sound like much, but the, the device that made that work at a car telephone was twice as big as this whole cell phone is today. And we had to squeeze that into one quarter of the phone. 
We had to make a brand new antenna. We had to operate on hundreds of radio channels at the same time. We've got the most advanced technology we could find everywhere. And these guys actually built a phone. It was just miraculous. They called it the Dynatac, which stood for Dynamic Adaptive Total Area Coverage. Because of its size, it earned the nicknames the Shoe Phone and the Brick. Okay, so this brings us to April 3rd, 1973. The night before, Marty is set to demonstrate his cell phone for the first time on live TV. His team was up until 2 a.m. working out of the New York Hilton, putting the finishing touches on their prototype. Then, the morning of the broadcast, Marty gets some unfortunate news from a team member. She says, you know, we just got bumped from the morning TV show. Sorry, Marty. And the only thing I could find to substitute was this little radio station. They have agreed to do an interview. And I said, fine, if we're going to do an interview, we're going to do it on the streets, moving so that we could show people what the freedom of being anywhere. And uh, that's how that first call got set up. Almost like everything was an accident, but it wasn't. We had a vision. Bumped from his TV booking, Marty decided the world's first cell phone call would happen on the sidewalk, not far from his hotel. People asked, did I feel the the historic impact of that moment. And my answer is, all I felt was, boy, I hope this thing works. And who was the first to receive a call from Marty's cell phone? That choice was a case of good old-fashioned trolling. So here I am walking down the street with this uh, reporter. And amazingly enough, I was so worried about all the other things about the full working. I hadn't thought about who to call. And I looked up the number of my adversary in the bell system, the guy that was running the car telephone program, Dr. Joel Engel, and I dial his number on the Dynatac phone, and amazingly, he answered, not his secretary, and I said, hi, Joel, it's Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. I said, Joel, I'm calling you from a cell phone. He says, really? I said, yes, but this is a real cell phone. It's a personal handheld, portable cell phone. I wasn't averse to rubbing it in. Silence on the other end of the line. I suspect he was gritting his teeth. Today, it's easy to look back and recognize this as a defining moment for modern technology. But in those early days, few saw the potential of the cell phone. Marty's pitch was met with a steady cry of no from prospective business partners, including one prospect in England. There were just a lot of naysayers People just did not accept the fact that this was going to be important. And this fellow says, you don't understand. You you Americans somehow use uh, more modern technology. But we've done a study in London, and we think that the maximum number of people that will want to have a cell phone in London is 12,000. Even his arch rival underestimated the new technology. The Bell System, they did a study, and they said that the most number of cellular phones that will exist in the world is a little over a million. But little by little, people start finding out how important it was to be connected all the time. Bell continued to doubt the potential of cell phones, but Motorola was all in. By the early 80s, they invested tens of millions of dollars developing and promoting cell phone technology. And that was before they sold a single phone. 
Finally, in 1982, in a historic decision, the FCC decided to break up Bell's monopoly, opening the telecom industry to competition. When the first cell phones hit the market in 1983, consumers were tentative, and with good reason. The phone cost $4,000, they were big, and they didn't work that well. The phrase dropped calls quickly entered the popular lexicon. But for Marty, it was the personal nature of a cell phone and its potential to make us more productive that was the basis for his confidence in the technology. It doesn't sound very different, but when you made a phone call on a wired phone, you were calling a place. When you make a phone call on your cell phone and you're calling another cell phone, you're calling a person. It's always a person. Huge, huge difference. So that really is the profound change that we made in society. And people still don't understand that. And even more important is that cell phone really is the glue that makes our whole economy work. There are more cell phones in the world today, more cell phones in the United States than there are people. And Marty's well aware that another cell phone visionary helped make that a reality. Steve Jobs was not a technology guy. He was a people person. Of course, his most important person was himself, but the, that's beside the point. But he had a great sensitivity to how the user reacted. Over the 1980s and 90s, cell phones got smaller, less expensive, and more reliable. By the early 2000s, the first camera phones hit the market, and flip phone designs like the Motorola Razr created lots of buzz. But for the most part, cell phones were still just that, a phone. It was clear that around that time, of course, there was a bunch of phones out there, mobile phones, but everything was a little complicated and nothing felt intuitive or easy to use. Steve didn't even have a cell phone until he had an iPhone, I think. <laughs> In 1997, Bas Ording was studying interaction design in the Netherlands when his professor put him in contact with a few Silicon Valley tech firms, including Apple. Impressed with his portfolio, Apple invited Bass to their California campus for a day of one-on-one -on -one interviews. At the end of a long series of meetings, Bass was told he needed to talk to one more person. He said, actually, uh, Steve Jobs also wants to see your work. What? Really? Uh, I did really not expect that, so I had to go upstairs to the fourth floor in the main building there. And it was like the, the boardroom where they had like an iMac set up in the corner for presentations. Like, and that hadn't been released at that point yet. So I was super excited to see a, a real iMac uh, for the first time. Yeah, and so I brought my CD-ROM with my work on it and I, was, I could show it on the iMac. Then in walked Steve Jobs. For Bass, this was not an ordinary day. The meeting was pretty interesting because he was very direct about stuff because I had a whole bunch of interactive prototypes, demos to show to him. And so at some point I showed him this demo, which I called the little fisheye magnification demo, where you can basically roll your cursor over a strip of like tiny little images, little thumbnails of, of photos. And it would like magnify, which ultimately became uh, functional in the on the Mac. So I think that's definitely the, the demo where he probably thought, oh, this is a solution to some of the problems we're trying to solve. And then we talked some more, and then Kenny said, hey, um, boss, uh, I want you to come work for Apple. The late 90s were the beginning of one of Apple's most dynamic eras. With Bass helping to design user interfaces, Apple introduced the iMac, the PowerBook G4, and the iPod. Then, just a few years into the new millennia, Bass got a curious assignment. 
Steve, he wanted to have a sheet of glass that he can read his email on. And then we had to go figure out how to make that work somehow. But at that point, nothing like that really existed yet. Bass and his team got to work on a prototype. They found a company that made a black touchpad, which could sense finger movement. Picture an iPad without a screen. Then they connected the touchpad to a computer and projected whatever image was displayed on the computer onto the pad. This acted as a guide for the fingers. Then, if you touch the pad in a specific place, it caused the computer to react. It was really cool to experience this where you could basically touch the light and the lightest touch would be recognized. At some point, we made a demo where you can zoom in and uh, on an image, like a, a, a picture of a flower that you can just like make it larger and smaller and or rotate it as well and all that stuff. Uh, and it, it's, those are things that are usually on a computer are not so easy to do because you have to select all the different tools. And, uh, and now just with two fingers, you could do moving and scaling and rotation all at the same time. So it was really exploring, like, what can you even do with your fingers? But all we had was, like, at that point, a, like a tablet-sized touchscreen. The project continued with Apple's legendary secrecy. Bass worked in a secret lab with no windows and was one of the very few people who could access the room. No one on the team knew exactly what Jobs had in mind for the technology. But the overall product was kind of unclear what it was. But then, at some point, I got a phone call, and it was Steve, and he says, like, hey, listen, we're going to do a phone. And it's going to be all just the screen, and we're going to use the multi-touch stuff, and there's not going to be any buttons on it. So I was like, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. That's a very interesting idea to do that. So that was sort of the very beginning of that project. Now that Bass and his team knew what they were working on, they could really dig in. There was an endless parade of long days and working weekends building new features for the phone. On Mondays, they'd present their demos to Jobs, hoping they'd hit the mark. Bass learned pretty quickly that it was difficult to predict how he'd react to their ideas. I had this idea where if there's already music playing and you're in a list of songs, if you tap on one, that it wouldn't necessarily interrupt the current playing music uh, right away, that it would basically ask you a step in between, like, do you want to play this now or you want to play it after this song or something like that, like a jukebox or whatever. I thought, oh, this is a great new addition to it, a feature to make it a little bit better. Of course, I spent a bunch of time making the little demo, little animations, all that stuff, and but that was not well uh, received. But he got pretty upset about it because he's like, it's just not simple enough. And he would definitely yell at people if things were or too complicated or didn't look good. As the announcement deadline neared, there were bugs to be fixed, designs to improve, and Jobs' notes to deal with. There were issues with the phone's battery life, software would crash, and often calls wouldn't come through. Bass and his team found it especially difficult to build a touchscreen keyboard that would accurately type messages. But then Steve, uh, he sounded very confident that uh, something uh, could come out of this. I, of course, I thought deep down, like, oh my God, I don't know, this is going to be quite the challenge. Sleep-deprived and their nerves raw, Bass and his team spent their remaining time and energy on those final touches. Then, the day came on January 9th, 2007, to reveal the iPhone to the world. As Bass watched an excited crowd of tech enthusiasts stream into San Francisco's Moscone Center, his team anxiously waited for the event to start, hoping nothing had been overlooked. So, yeah, on a day like that, the keynote speech, it's like a lot of the engineers that worked on the iPhone some of them were in the audience, some of them were backstage, but they were like very nervous that anything that they worked on somehow crashed or whatever in the, right in the middle of Steve's demo to this big presentation. The 
The auditorium lights dimmed, and Jobs took the stage in his signature black turtleneck jeans and sneakers. He began by admitting he'd been looking forward to this day for two years and recapped the legacy of Apple's products dating back to the 80s. Then he set up the big announcement. Apple was unveiling three new products. An internet device, a music player, and a phone. And then he he repeated it, I think, like three times or so. And then he said, like, you get it? And then it turned out to be it's just one product. So everything is all in one on the iPhone. That was quite a surprise for people. It's so cool to to see Steve Jobs present that stuff like in person there and like it's very special. He's such a, he was such a master at doing those kind of presentations. There's a palpable growing excitement in the room as Jobs outlines feature after feature. No buttons, just a screen. And you don't need a stylus, you use your finger. Jobs would even demonstrate one of Bass's own innovations, the iPhone's famous rubber band scrolling feature. The launch and the iPhone were a hit. But for Bass, the day held one particularly special moment. There was like all these journalists and people like talking with him there, and, and he was on the stage. But then I was kind of waiting around, like I thought maybe there's a moment I can just say, hey, congrats or something, you know? But it was very busy. But then I guess he noticed me. So he he walked away from all the journalists and he came over and he's like, hey, congrats. And he's, he's like, I still remember the first time you showed the scrolling demo. It was a short little moment that was but uh, definitely special. Six months later, in a scene repeated in cities worldwide, an eager crowd lined up outside the Apple store in San Francisco, hoping to get their hands on an iPhone. In 2007, Apple sold 1.9 million iPhones. Since then, they've sold more than 2 billion worldwide. Its intuitive design has always been a major part of its success. But for that first iPhone, so was timing. The world had become internet literate and infatuated with cell phones iPods were revolutionizing music. The iPhone infused the combined momentum of all three in a single device. But neither Steve Jobs nor Bass and his team could have imagined how users would take to its features, to the point where one of the less used functions in a phone is the phone itself. It's interesting how there are certain things that you just don't realize how it ends up being used because that was a big thing that for iPhone that you could access the internet and, and do web searches and Google searches and get your map data and all that stuff. Because if you weren't able to get that stuff, then uh, it would have been way more limited, right? So if iPhone was like invented like 20 years earlier, it would have been a whole different thing probably, right? So it's sort of the right kind of timing in a way for this particular product. The iPhone and the smartphones that followed did more than change the telephone. They combined multiple technologies, effectively transforming the way people communicate. A success owing in no small part to the iPhone's brilliantly simple interface, an attribute not lost on cell phone pioneer Marty Cooper. That's what the contribution of the iPhone was. It had ways of making the phone intuitive, that you could work a phone without an instruction manual. People today don't even know what an instruction manual is. That really was the contribution of the iPhone. We're still on our way to what I think is an optimum phone, but the iPhone was a huge step forward from what had been done previously. Marty knew that the clunky device he invented 50 years ago was just the beginning of cell phone technology. But he's had a front row seat to the entire history of cell phones and smartphones, which has given him some insight into what might come next. I think the phone is going to end up being a part of you. All of those things will be uh, integrated in one system on your body. 
and it will anticipate your needs. That's what the phone will be like. People tend to be conservative. They don't think about what the future can be like. It takes people who are dreamers that really uh, do think about what the world could be like if you use the most modern technology. I hope that, that we make a contribution, we dreamers. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from Setup. Working on your next big thing? SetApp's productivity toolkit will help you stay focused and get stuff done. Head over to setapp.com to see if Setup can help you bring your ideas to life.